Hello from Midori House in London and welcome to Sunday Brunch here on Monocle 24 with me, Henry Rees Sheridan. Coming up today, we'll speak to a man making musical instruments more accessible and a London restaurant that's crafted a menu around Nelson Mandela's favourite dishes. Plus... The one that really caught my attention is the one I sort of start with and it's a sort of a general phrase hurled at people when you're really angry with them and it is a turd in your teeth. Insults from Renaissance Britain. And Cornelia Meyer will join me to go through the weekend papers. All that to come this hour on Monocle 24. To begin today's show, thanks to decades of activism, almost every aspect of life has become more accessible to people with disabilities in recent years. But one field where accessibility issues are underreported is musical performance. That's where the OMI Trust comes in. It's an organisation working to adapt and create instruments for musicians who are disabled. Dr Stephen Hetherington is the founder of OMI and joins me in the studio now. Uh, Welcome along to the programme, Stephen. Uh, To begin with, what first brought the need for adapted instruments to your attention? Uh, it's uh, very, very simple. My daughter uh, at school, at, um, as a uh, just into her teens, uh, wanted to play a musical instrument, and the school quite correctly said there is nothing for you to play. This isn't quite strictly true in that the, the, she could have been given something like a trumpet, which you can make sounds out of with one hand and operate the vowels, but you can't do much else. If you're going to progress, that then you really need two highly dexterous hands and arms. All instruments require them. And tell me about some of the instruments that you have developed so far as part of the trust yeah well, let me start with the uh, with the competition where well, that's where our trust began the idea was that as these instruments didn't exist what's the best way to find them what's the best way to to get ad- adaptations that would not restrict the potential virtuosity of an instrument in other words so the instrument wouldn't be the problem for the musician musician may have their own problems in playing we all do uh, but it shouldn't be the instrument so we we started a competition an international competition which has been extraordinarily successful the first one in 2013 Uh, and indeed our first ever winner uh, was a saxophone built in america Um, called the toggle key saxophone and essentially it takes what you have to do with uh, your two hands in playing a saxophone a perfectly ordinary saxophone but rearranges the way in which the keys operate so that they could be done dexterously and without any disadvantage just by one hand to what extent do the instruments that you have developed so far resemble conventional instruments and obviously the way uh, instruments look their physical form determine to a large extent the way they sound Mm, mm. is replicating that physical form their physical properties the the main challenge it is uh, but most of them excuse me most of them are the same that is to say we're a lot of the instruments we get in the competition and a lot of our winners are standard instruments where a few things have been altered so if you take something like a trumpet or a saxophone the sound is coming from the mouthpiece and the 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 arrangement uh, of the instrument itself the bell you know the whole thing <clears throat> the keys are a way of changing note changing notes uh, so as long as you maintain that you get a traditional instrument something like the trumpet which we now have 
um, several examples of, uh, is, uh, is really based more on supporting systems than the instrument itself. Uh, so that is uh, that the instrument is quite um, doesn't really need a lot of adaptation to make it playable. Some small adaptations, but not a lot, to make it playable uh, for uh, for limited disabilities. Extreme disabilities uh, uh, become more problematic. But essentially, we always try and maintain the base core of the instrument. Having said that, we do have some electronic instruments as well that emulate, although that kind of electronic emulation is. Um, not quite as advanced as the techies would have us believe. What was the state of accessible musical instrument design and production before you started launching competitions and developing instruments? Oh, dismal, non-existent, I would say. There was individual instrument makers had, on occasions, we found, uh, made instruments for people they knew. Someone disabled would come to them and said, I was a uh, I was a flautist, uh, I had a stroke, I couldn't pl then play. Or um, uh, a parent comes with a child who's disabled and the child says, I want to play. And that individual maker had done what they could. Of course, there are all different kinds of solutions, therefore, and not all instrument makers are necessarily talented enough or brilliant enough, imaginative enough to be able to overcome the problems. Um, but that, that they were a few around. And we did find there's a, there's a flute in, in Austria, there was this toggle key saxophone, which wasn't made for us it was pre-existing um, there are some uh, there's a recorder that was uh, that's been around for many years actually a one-handed recorder but mostly uh, there's very little and none that you could um, let me take another step back if I may went with the competition the, the aim of the competition or the rather the the challenge of the competition is to build these instruments that are playable without the use of one hand and arm that's not because that's the limit of the disabilities we deal with. It's merely to get a hold of technical solutions, which we then rebuild into all kinds of disabilities. Um, <clears throat> so what, taking it through the competition, we were able to get a very wide range of ideas and solutions, which then brought us, honed us down to those which were most, most successful. But as I say, there was nothing organised. There still isn't, actually. The OMI Trust, as far as I know, and tragically, I think we're the only people in the world doing this. Obviously, when instruments are made differently to conventional instruments, they're going to require uh, a different technique uh, to play. And as a result, mm. it's going to require a different uh, technique to teach them as well. So when it comes to the issue of instruction, how does that work? Right. Uh, well, um, uh, we've had a series of pilot uh, training teaching programs um, through the country um, uh, which to, to tell us about that subject since since uh, uh, since 2015, that the the notion being that that uh, we bring uh, teachers, existing music teachers, instrument teachers, who are willing to relearn how they do things, and then we ha we match it with a research program. This this one uh, the 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 one that that's uh, recently been published last year was um, was prepared by um, um, the University of Birmingham, City of University of Birmingham. Birmingham City University. I must get its title correct or I'll be in deep trouble. Um, that, uh, so that research program followed the whole process of teaching, how it worked, what worked, what didn't work. We, we talked to the, to the students, of course, mostly children. Um, we talked to the teachers and, uh, and extensively examined the whole process. What we found is some interesting things. One is that there are some differences. One-to-one -one teaching is 
pretty much essential because of the nature of the disability. That's not how teaching is done generally, music instrument teaching in schools at the moment or through the music hubs. But one-to-one teaching is essential. You need a bit more time. There's, the, there's tiredness is a factor. But uh, overall, we found that, um, that the, the same techniques generally work. You need some additional ones but you don't have to drop out the ones you've already got as a teacher. So uh, it's not actually that, that difficult to make those transferences. However, having said that, of course, the teachers aren't uh, practised in these techniques. So you get something, well, use that saxophone example again, um, the, the teacher then has to have the time to go away and learn these new fingering techniques to be able to play. But the musicianship that goes behind it is exactly the same. So you said that the ideal for you is for an instrument in itself to provide no uh, limitation to the Mm. degree of virtuosity that can be acquired uh, by a a disabled player. Do you envisage a point in the future where... Uh, a player who would otherwise have been excluded uh, from playing a musical instrument is playing among the best oh. musicians in oh, the world. Absolutely, absolutely, it's happening now. And, uh, the the our uh, we have a major conference in Birmingham in September, September seventh eighth. Part of that is a gala concert, and one of our artists there, um, a, a German horn player called Felix Kleiser, look him up on the web, who has no arms. But he is already a recognised international uh, virtuosi. He's, he is a stunningly good musician and player by any standards. And he's performing with Berlin Philharmonic and all, all the usual orchestras. And what's the nature of the instrument that he plays with? A standard French horn, but it's made possible by the, the nature of the stand in which it sits so that he can play because he hasn't got arms to hold it. And he plays the, the, the keys with his feet. He started at the age of three, and there's a lesson in this, if I may t- take this one, because I think this is quite an important point. A lot of the, 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 um, uh, the problems that we, that we construct ourselves for the disabled world, Felix started to play at the age of four. He went to his parents. I can imagine this scene, any parent could imagine this scene, where this child with no arms comes along and says, I want to play the French horn. And you would, as a, as a, as a responsible parent, would might say, well, perhaps there's something else we could find you. But they didn't. They said to Felix, you know, OK, let's see if we can make it work. And his first French horn was lying on the floor just that they were, he was crawling or just sitting and was able to lean down and, and play the mouthpiece from there. Um, <clears throat> eventually he grows and the stands grow with him to be able to support it. But he is honestly, he's as good as, uh, as a soloist, a French horn soloist, as you'll find across the world. He has international reputation. So he's not the only one. Well, there are, there are others, but very, very few. And in terms of musical uh, organisations, be they teaching organisations, uh, orchestras, um, what what can they do to maximise mm. the the accessibility of particip- participating uh, with them uh, uh, for people with disabilities? Well. I have to say this is this is a slightly more difficult subject. The the um, everyone we meet through the orchestras pretty well. There are some exceptions, but pretty well everyone we meet through the orchestras, through government, through arts councils, through teaching organisations, uh, says to us, "This is great. This is what we ought to be doing." 
but very, very few are actually doing it. Very, very few actually change what how they operate in order to incorporate the possibilities that we and other organisations similar to us are bringing up. I say similar, not working quite in the same field, but um, this is a huge frustration. Um, it, it, we, uh, to give you one example, um, there are, uh, within the categories of physical disability that we would work with, there are several million people in the UK that meet that, from arthritis down to, well, people with no arms, quadriplegics and so on. We had in a, in a, a, um, a series of questions to all the music hubs across the country. We had some come back and say about, about who you're teaching and what disabled pupils have. Some were coming back and saying, we don't have any disabled people in our, uh, disabled students in our region, which is utterly absurd. And it's not a matter of ill will. They don't mean to be you know, uh, difficult, but it, there is a whole change in thinking to recognise both the possibility and the opportunity. The actual things they have to do to change are not that complex, but so far very few are doing it. Well, Dr. Stephen Hetherington, uh, founder of the OMI uh, Trust, thank you so much for coming to join me. I think you're doing really wonderful work and I, I wish you best of luck in the future. And that's... Uh, O-H-M-I Trust, that's how it's spelled. And I presume we can find you on the internet. Uh, O-H-M-I.org.uk. Great stuff. Thank you so much uh, again uh, uh, for joining me. Thank you. The 105th Tour de France is underway and many fans are getting their daily fix via a podcast co-hosted by none other than Lance Armstrong. Although he was stripped of his seven tour titles when his long history of illicit doping was revealed, there's still an appetite for his take on the sport. At the Tour de France for Monocle is our reporter Ian Wiley. I'm sitting in a cafe in the town of Les Herbiers in northwest France, which has hosted the first week of this year's Tour de France. It's full of TV trucks, journalists, and other media. And yet, the most authoritative, insightful, and provocative podcast that you're likely to hear about the tour is being produced and presented not here, but 5,000 miles away, in Aspen, Colorado, home of one Lance Edward Armstrong, the man that newspaper headline writers still describe as the disgraced seven-time Tour de France champion. The Move podcast is mostly analysis and commentary on the day's racing, plus the occasional rant, expletives and all, from Armstrong, who's never been shy with his opinions. But his co-host, the guy who holds it all together and steers the conversation through sometimes difficult terrain, is a former morning radio DJ from Austin in Texas, J.B. Hager, who has known Armstrong for more than 20 years. I asked Hager to tell me how he views his role in bringing back Armstrong into the public sphere. It was a, a very pivotal moment for, for me personally. You know, I had a 25-year radio career, and then that's a changing industry, and I had left, and, and so I literally was on the streets for the first time in my whole life, not living on the streets, but out of work, for the first time in my whole life, and I was, it was a bit of a panicky moment. And Lance calls me just out of the blue. This was three weeks before the tour started last year. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing, literally. I'm, I'm doing nothing. And he goes, well, what do you think about uh, co-hosting a Tour de France podcast with me? We'll just recap the tour every day. 
And I paused for a moment, and I and I I said, well, I'm flattered, Lance, but I got to be honest. I mean, I haven't been on a bike in four years, nor have I followed any pro racing the last four years. <laughs> and he goes, cool, neither have I. <laughs> and so... And and he had kind of, if you've followed the podcast, he shared that story, how he, you know, didn't want to be on the bike for a while. He really took up running and, and um, getting into the gym quite a bit and had taken a break from the bike. And he was starting to fall back in love with it. And then the next thing out of his mouth was, hey, there's a little bit of a a little bit more information you should know we're gonna we're gonna do it from from aspen from colorado his house is chaotic i mean it's busy he's got two little kids and there's people coming and going and he hosts a lot of charitable events there and uh his fiance anna as well it's it's a busy busy place and it's noisy and he's like where where, where can we do this and i was like well, I'll, I'll bring my uh, Airstream to Aspen. How's that? I mean, I guess you guys call them caravans. Since then, I've actually converted it, a lot more of it, to be a all-functioning studio now. It actually makes a remarkable sound studio without having to do that much. Because on the inside of an Airstream, there are no 90-degree angles anywhere. And if you're a sound geek, you would appreciate that. Armstrong's five-year legal battle with the U.S. Postal Service, which sponsored his team, was only settled three months ago. Didn't the legal uncertainty around Armstrong cause Hager to hesitate before accepting this co-hosting offer? You know, it didn't, um, because Lance and I go way back. Um, my, my very first year of doing a morning show in Austin was 1996. I started the new radio show, and at that time, Lance was sick. Or, you know, he had been through the surgeries, the chemo, and at the time, there wasn't even talk of a comeback. When it was announced in the newspaper that he was starting a foundation and putting together a ride and a concert, I uh, contacted him and, and said, Hey, uh, you know, I'm this local radio guy, and uh, I'd love to support your your charitable efforts. So we started the relationship with that. He was very upfront with me that he didn't know if people were going to take to this or accept him or listen. And the response was overwhelming within the first week. I mean, it was just phenomenal. We ended up with uh, over five million listens in the three weeks of the tour last year. Regardless of what you think of Lance, um, he is, he was, in his racing days, was a, had incredible work ethic, dug the science of racing, and was a master tactician, right? Uh, along with Johan Bernil, the director. They were masters of, of the game. If you love the Tour de France and want to understand what's going on, whether it's physical or politics, he knows it. He knows it very well. And I immediately told him, we, we don't need two experts, right? You're the expert. My job is just to tee up the questions. And, you know, so I just have that more raw look at the race. And sometimes the questions are really stupid, you know, and sometimes they're just questions that haven't been asked, right? Um, it just makes it for a good dynamic. It's his own channel. He's not beholden to anyone. He has no boss. No one has any influence over the dialogue. He can say whatever he wants about 
the teams, the coverage, the the course, the 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 governing bodies, whatever. It's a very unfiltered channel, and I think that's refreshing to people. On the podcast, Armstrong is a bundle of energy. So what's he like to work with? There are challenges. For example, he's on his mountain bike right now, and I'm doing technical things. <laughs> you know, it's just so that I mean, the challenges come from a few things. One, one by by midday when we're wrapping up the show, he literally is about to jump out of his skin if he can't get out and suffer. I mean, every day the guy will will I mean has to have some sort of physical challenge, or he's just intolerable to be honest right that's part of it you know the other interesting thing is much like bike racing he's incredibly competitive he likes to look at the metrics and the numbers and downloads and it went to uh number two in sports podcasts in the u.s last year you know and i guarantee you he wanted to be number one each podcast episode finishes with armstrong answering questions sent in by listeners does Hager have to filter these? This is what I was particularly surprised by. He's not condescending to novice questions. You know, I mean, if anybody's ever been a cyclist and you've done some racing, you know, people give you the gratuitous, how do you pee on a bike, right? And he, a lot of racers would be like, come on, don't ask me these stupid questions. But he'll, you know, he'll address them. And it's, I think it's endearing and it helps talk to a broader audience than just cycling geeks I, I do pick and choose questions from emails and from facebook um there's always going to be haters i mean there's even if you don't have a, a past like lances i mean people are very vocal with a keyboard <laughs> if that makes sense and and it's it's it's, it's this horrible human nature to to bash things and so that exists but you know, we have done numerous live shows, and uh, to date, I've never had to edit out a question. Um, people are, you know, for the most part, pretty good people. And even if it was a harsh question in public, I think he would address it. And he knows that there are people that will 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 never accept him again. I mean, he's come to terms with that. And that's why his other podcast is called The Forward. Like, you know, you have to move forward. And some people are going to go with him and some are not. And I think he's come to terms with that. For Monocle in Northwest France, I'm Ian Wiley. Thank you, Ian. Still to come, we flick through the weekend papers and learn about Nelson Mandela's favourite food. Stay with us. Every Sunday, the Bulletin with UBS goes behind the numbers and the hype to explain what's really happening in the world of finance. Brought to you from the desks of the key analysts at UBS and experts from around the world, the programme delivers definitive insights into the people, places and products set to shape the week ahead. This is the show that explains how a fast-moving financial world really works. Set your agenda for the week ahead. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every Sunday at 1600 London time. Anytime after that, you can download from monocle.com and via iTunes or SoundCloud. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. It's time now for a regular Sunday brunch feature called Weekend Reads. 
Each week, Georgina Godwin speaks to a different author about their latest work. This week, she met Ruth Goodman, a social historian, BBC presenter, and author of How to Behave Badly in Renaissance Britain. Ruth has got some useful tips on how to pick the perfect Shakespearean insult, as she tells Georgina. That's what I really love about history is, is the people. And sometimes the well-behaved can seem very distant and strange. Mm. You know, and I think when you start talking about people who are behaving more like, well, frankly, like we do, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you can see the shared humanity in people who lose their temper or <laughs> take advantage of situations or you know, all that sort of normal human slight grubbiness. Mm. It just makes you understand, you know, the shared link across the ages. Yes, well let's look at some of those links because some of the things that we think is behaving badly now wasn't then. I mean, let's talk about spitting, for instance. Basically, we've decided that spitting is a bad thing since we discovered the way that tuberculosis is spread. It was a big medical discovery in the 19th century and it was rather horrifying and a great deal of social pressure was then put upon people to change their behavior. So in the 16th and 17th century, nobody knew about that. I mean, it just, you know, it wasn't on the agenda. Nobody had a clue about germs. They had no idea that spitting was a way of transferring infection from person to person. So why wouldn't they? It was a part of getting rid of the excess waste of the body in the same way that blowing your nose is mm-hmm. and, and was pretty much dealt with in the same sort of ways. like you've got to do it it's necessary it's not particularly pleasant so avoid doing it in somebody's face but other than that you know go for it feel free <laughs> oh there are some fantastic insults in this book what's your favorite Oh, I don't know. It depends how rude you want to be. <laughs> oh, let's be as rude as possible. And then I want to use it on everyone I meet that annoys me. <laughs> well, I have to be honest. The one that really caught my attention is the one I sort of start with. And it's a sort of a general phrase hurled at people when you're really angry with them. And it is a turd in your teeth. <laughs> it's the most graphic. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could yell it at anyone. It's not specific. It's good shouting language. That's fantastic. To be employed next time I feel road rage. What does nitty slitty breached name mean? Oh, right. Well, nitty means nits. You know, it means the eggs of life. Right. Slitty means you've got your flies open. <laughs> and britches are, of course, the man's trouser department. Right, right. So basically, it, a nitty slitty britty... Brit- <laughs> I can't even say it, you can't either. Knave is, is, is sort of a, a knave is a person of no value. So you're a useless person wandering around with your flies open. You've got pu- probably pubic lice if you're talking about breeches. <laughs> <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> so look, let's talk about um, things like hats. So people used to obviously remove their hats and performed a, a bow in greeting. That went out the window. Was there a reason for that? Yeah, I mean, we were a hat-wearing society until after the Second World War. We've had centuries and centuries of hat-wearing and a very powerful meanings associated with how we wear them, what we wear and what we do with them. And that has all faded in the second half of the 20th century, so it comes as a bit of a surprise to many of us these days. Mm. It's a bit hard to say why it faded out. Certainly earlier, it was absolutely central to society. A man covered his head all the time. And if he took it off, it was only in a show of submission. Mm. He was making himself humble, um, exposed, vulnerable. It was part of the sort of greeting gestures of showing 
you know, I come in peace or I'm, I offer you my service or those sorts of underlying feelings of non-aggression when greeting. Mm. Queen Elizabeth once left somebody bowing for a quarter of an hour. Yeah, I know. It's great, isn't it? I just This is one of the things I've really enjoyed about writing this book. It's about the body language. It's relatively easy as a historian to talk about the word, people's words because they get written down. You know, they get transmitted quite easily. Mm. But all the sort of subtle things that go with words, the way we read people is often very physical isn't it and i love Mm. that the whole greetings gesture thing was a big deal everybody made greetings gestures all the time there were many ways you could do it when that french ambassador appeared in front of queen elizabeth he was there at a politically difficult moment the queen wished to show her displeasure with france in general of course he's the representative of the nation and he executes a really beautiful naturally because he's well trained beautiful bow in the french style which you'd expect wouldn't you mm. but this leaves him in a sort of very humble posture with his head bowed his hat off his knees bent and she fails to give the signal to recover mm. now you know this could be done with words in a sort of greeting way or it could be done with a small flick of the finger to indicate that he would rise and she just left him there mm. and of course he then has to decide whether to get up without permission which, you know, in a politically charged, you can just imagine the atmosphere in the room, can't mm. you? Mm. But he doesn't. He holds it. I mean, and if you ever try to put yourself in that position and hold it, like the first minute's fine. Second minute, you're already beginning to think, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what agony he must have been in, even as a fairly fit bloke. <laughs> Gosh. By the end of it, I do not know. But, and I think you should also think of like, the tension in the room as you watch this, because everybody will have known, everybody will have had to hold bows. Mm. Everybody will have been aware of what was going on, and yet not a word is spoken. Mm. How interesting. Look, why was it considered bad form to quote Shakespeare? Oh, terrible, dreadful lower-class rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted to be posh in the 16th century, you modelled your language on the ancients. You know, like either Greek or, or Roman, the classics, and you try to make your speech sound as much like that as possible. The best spoken people were those who sounded like they were directly translating from, from Latin and Greek. And, and quoting some oik who did plays for the general public on, oh, dreadful, that was, that was bad, oh, bad form. Dear. And then, to add insult to injury, the man kept making words up. that was terrible terrible thing to do fashionable people did not quote Shakespeare listen I understand that you practice what you preach you often sleep and eat and dress and wash like a Tudor I wonder one how it eliminates your work and b how it impacts on your social life (laughs) it is my social life (laughs) I'm not sure how many friends you might have who want to come quite close to you quite a lot well it is my social life I do it with other people we know we're odd (laughs) we're not forcing anyone else to be odd (laughs) but I mean you know, the whole of this, writing the books and, and the things I've done on the telly actually grew out of the hobby. It started as a hobby 25, 30 years ago. And, you know, there's a group of people who were all interested in the similar sorts of things. I mean, who else can I talk to about this sort of stuff? Fantastic. <laughs> so we share quite a lot of experiences. And obviously, sitting around a fire of an evening, it's, it's, it's good crack. Ruth Goodman there speaking to Georgina Godwin. Ruth's new book, How to Behave Badly in Renaissance Britain, is out now. To hear more from Georgina, check out Meet the Writers. You can find the full back catalogue online at monocle.com. Up next, we go through the weekend papers. 
Mention the name Funkhaus in Berlin and you'll be greeted with excited curiosity or a mysterious smile from those in the know. The former communist broadcasting house got a new lease of life when young musicians hunkered down. Monocle Films set out on a tour of the stunning studios and recording halls. Funkhaus on the same wavelength, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Summer is finally here, and so is Monocle's bumper July-August double issue. This is when we zero in on quality of life and cities, why we love them, what makes them actually work, and how they need to improve. As always, we reveal our ranking of the top 25 cities to live in worldwide. Find out if your city makes the cut. And for the first time, we present our manifesto for creating a more relaxed city, a guide to breathing in and lightening up and a celebration of everything from taking your kit off to making a bit of a racket. In the affairs pages, we meet the urban heroes giving back to their hometowns. While in design, we take a closer look at greenery in the city and how to do it right. Elsewhere, we take a dip in Geneva's top swimming spot, we tuck into some northern Spanish grub, and we sit down for a mass with the locals in a few Bavarian beer gardens. Prost! That's all in the July-August issue of Monocle on newsstands everywhere now. Or head to monocle.com to become a subscriber. Time now for a look through the weekend papers. I'm very pleased to say I'm joined in the studio by Cornelia Meyer, CEO of Meyer Resources, a business consultancy. Cornelia, thanks for coming in. Where should we begin? Well, I think we should begin with uh, the front page of the FT, uh, which says Trump switches track on Brexit in bid to mend bridges with May. And it basically, you know, talks about the... um, about Trump's meeting with May and the, 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 the press conference where he said, oh, no, no, he really, it was fake news. His interview, which we had all heard on tape, was fake news. And he was sure we could get a deal. It may be difficult to get a deal with the US if she went ahead with her Brexit plan, uh, um, a la Czechos. But uh, he was sure something could be done. So um, so he, uh, he, um, he sort of tries to, and, and he always respected the prime minister, which is quite interesting. This must have been very difficult for May to stand there in front of Blenheim Palace when an aide had told her 10 minutes earlier that, that Trump had just said that um, Boris Johnson would make a better P- PM. Um, so it, it basically shows how he backtracks. Um, the, the, the FT goes on on the second page to call him the disruptor in chief because he has been disruptive. He, I think here the visit went better than we thought. It was very bad. The interview set it up badly, but certainly the NATO summit went down. Went went did not had some major upsets in it, and he lambasted Germany on their gas imports from um, from Europe. But if he wants them to pay two percent of GDP for the for the armed forces. They need to their economy needs to be humming, and for that they need energy. And Russia is the closest source of gas. Yeah, the headline on the uh, second uh, page of reporting on Trump in the FT uh, says Trump plays disruptor in chief on Europe trip, uh, and it goes on to say after a string of attacks on NATO members that stunned US allies, President launches unprecedented intervention in UK politics. It's just a reminder, isn't it, of quite the extent to which Trump does not play by the rules when it comes to diplomatic interactions. 
Absolutely not. But uh, and 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 I mean, for 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 the, for the already besieged PM, this was the worst thing that could happen. Although this being said, I I did an op-ed on 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 the NATO summit, and one of you, our senior military guys said, you know, he's unconventional, but if he got the Europeans to actually deliver those two percent, at least he's achieved something we've tried to achieve for t- for twenty years. Talking about a beleaguered uh, Mrs. May, uh, let's. Move Move on to the uh, observer. Yes, um, uh, she is very beleaguered, and if you look at um, the observer, has a piece inside which, which shows the latest opinion polls, where actually Corbyn ha- gets more approval than she does. It also argues with the Brexit plan that um, you know if all the opposition goes um, votes against it, the the, the 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 next week when it comes to when it comes to to Parliament, it takes seven to abstain uh, or, or uh, from from the government side or. From for to vote against and it will not fly. The thing that's really interesting here is that Mandelson joins the Brexiteer, the former Commissioner of Trade of the EU. Um, you know, the Blairite um, Mandelson um, um, joins joins the Brexiteers and says the um, the Chequers agreement essentially will not work. And he says we are worse off with Chequers than we were before because essentially we'll be rule takers and um, have have no say um, of it so a, a, a full Brexit would be better and um, yeah one should it's not just Trump one should maybe tell former members of government also they're no longer members of government well he does use Mandelson does use extremely uh, uh, florid language yes you know he says the whole thing now looks less like a soft Brexit than a national humiliation do you think that there's a grain of truth in what he's saying. No, I don't think there's a grain of truth in what he says. But I think the Chequers agreement, and I read through the whole the whole white paper, is deeply flawed. Because when you say when you it, it it's not clear on what's happening in Northern Ireland, uh, when you have only this, a common rule book with um, on on goods um, and 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 agri products and nothing on. On, on services and 80% of the economy is based on services. It's 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 the death of not the death, but it's it's very bad for the city. And also when you say, oh, we can have agreements. Well, you know, you can't have. There, Trump is actually right. How can you have an agreement on goods on, on goods uh, a trade agreement with the U.S. when you have the agri when you have the agri when you have a common rule book on agri on agri-products because the, the U.S. rulebook is very, very different. Let's move over to the U.S. itself now. We're going to look at a, a story in the New York Times. Yes, um, we have here high stakes for American auto sector in trade war. Um, you know, Trump um, has sort of unleashed a trade war and he has a bee in his bonnet, obviously, about China. And it makes the it makes the, the argument, the article, uh, the correct argument that, you know, if you look at the, the auto sector is just incredibly international. And if you look at, at GM sells most, m- more cars in China than anywhere else. Honda Odyssey, which is produced in 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 Detroit, um, has more um, U.S. content than any other car. And BMW is the biggest exporter from the U.S. So it's a very interna- in a very global industry. And if you sort of engage in trade war, I mean, lots of jobs will be lost. Now. 
you know, Trump may have a point in terms of that China does not play fair in terms of investment rules. It's very dicey in terms of intellectual property. Um, but he goes about it the wrong way. There would have been so many nations and so many companies to have a broad coalition and, and, and go to China under WTO, under the World Trade Organization or, you know, another in, in another way and say, you need to look at those things. But the way he goes about it, all he does, essentially, and this is the argument de facto that the article makes, is cut off the nose despite the face of, of US industry. So Trump having some difficulties at home, Putin having less in his home of Russia. No, it's one, it, is, it, it is one of the most brilliant... You, you generally only get something that brilliantly written, let's say, in, in The Economist. There's a, there's the, the, there is a brilliantly written place in, the, in, the, in, the, in Süddeutsche Zeitung, which is Thank You, uh, um, President, which says basically that the biggest winner, whoever wins the World Cup, the biggest winner is Putin because, you know, it was everything worked. Um, it showed Russia in a much more tolerant light than it usually is um, uh, in and and um, and 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 it, it was it was just a great PR stunt for Russia and the funny thing is also he, he's, he's very funny and he says you had all these tourists coming in and they a lot of them came in from far-flung far parts and they thought well you know it's everything is very cold and they needed to come in their bearskins and then it was very hot so they needed to keep the shops open longer so they could go shopping for 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 summer clothes so it's it's both witty but it makes a very personal pertinent point that this was a major PR exercise for Putin and he has just capitalized on it wonderfully. And then the next one is the, the, the Le Monde, obviously because the French are playing and, 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 and may win, which, which goes into how well the, how well the US, uh, how well the, their, their, um, how well their 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 coach and how well the whole team had done from 2016 when they nowhere were nowhere in 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 pulling themselves together. So it's 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 very that's the sport aspect. But I I really thought that that social aspect which had the political undertone was that. And if you look at Putin, I mean it's great. He is the World Cup. He comes out as the winner. Now he has his meeting with 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 Trump. He gets everything he wants. It's Putin. Cornelia Meyer, thank you so much uh, for joining me. You're listening to Sunday Brunch. We were just talking about the World Cup, which of course wraps up today with France facing off against Croatia. It's also been a busy few days off the pitch, with FIFA's disciplinary department issuing numerous fines, Diego Maradona keeping himself occupied as always, and Kenyan MPs causing controversy. Well, well with his final weekly wrap from Russia, here is Kieran Pender. And so it comes to this. It began with a three and a half year qualification process involving 210 nations. It then featured 32 teams in 64 matches across 11 cities over the past five weeks. On Sunday, the 2018 FIFA World Cup will be decided at Moscow's Luzhniki Stadium. Four years and two days since Germany were crowned world champions in Brazil, they will be replaced at the pinnacle of world football by either France or Croatia. And it is over! Allez les Bleus! All the way to the World Cup final! France was the first team to qualify for the decider, 
beating Belgium 1-0 on Tuesday thanks to a goal from Samuel Umtiti. It continues the Golden World Cup run of Didier Deschamps' side, who are desperate to avenge the 2016 European Championships final that they lost to Portugal on home soil. For Belgium, the loss was hard to take after a strong tournament. One of their players even criticised his victorious opponents for being an anti-football team. Mandzukic! Croatia hit the front! Mario Mandzukic pounced! And England are hurt! England's World Cup is also over. The three Lions lost an extra time to Croatia on Wednesday. Ivan Perisic cancelling out a Kirin Trippier opener in ordinary time before striker Mandzukic found the winner. Sunday will mark Croatia's first ever appearance in a World Cup final since the country declared independence in 1991. The last team to make their debut at this rarefied level were the Spanish in the 2010 World Cup final. Spain won. England will be leaving the World Cup £53,000 lighter, after the English FA will fine for unauthorised commercial branding on the socks of several players. Their semi-final opponents have also fallen foul of FIFA's strict commercial rules, with Croatia penalised the same amount for the sin of permitting players to drink non-sponsor beverages. To add insult to injury, FIFA issued an official warning to Croatia's Daniel Subasic. At the end of an earlier match, the goalkeeper had revealed a t-shirt under his kit in a tribute to a friend who died a decade ago following an on-field incident. The comparative quantum of these fines has drawn criticism. Russia will penalise just £7,500 for a fan's neo-Nazi banner, as were Mexico for homophobic chants. A stark indication of FIFA's priorities. And Maradona gives Argentina the lead. The England players protesting to the referee. A gift that keeps on giving at this World Cup is Diego Maradona. The Argentinian legend has consistently made headlines, from flipping his middle finger at the crowd to smoking a cigar within a smoke-free stadium, all while being on FIFA's payroll to the tune of £10,000 per day. Following Colombia's loss to England in the round of 16, Maradona told Latin American television network Telesur that the referee had committed a monumental theft. Y hoy vi un robo monumental en la cancha. That was one step too far for FIFA, who criticised his comments as entirely inappropriate and completely unfounded. Perhaps fearing for his lucrative ambassadorial role, Maradona apologised to FIFA via Instagram. <laughs> the World Cup has caused a stir in Kenya. 20 Kenyan members of parliament are currently in Russia at the taxpayers' expense on a two-week trip taking in both semis and the final. Senate clerk Jeremiah Nyingenya told a local newspaper that it is the MP's responsibility to understand sport and how to host such international tournaments. This is not a holiday. Twitter users in Kenya disagree. Finally, the unexpected hero of the World Cup, Google Translate. The search engine has reported a 30% increase in translate sessions from within Russia since the tournament began. Translation between Spanish and Russian was the most popular exchange, owing to the huge influx of South American fans, while queries involving the term beer rose by 65%. In a country where multilingualism is uncommon, 
Google Translate was the real impact substitute at this World Cup. For Monocle, saying Das Vidania to Russia, I'm Kieran Pender. Thanks, Kieran. Finally on today's show, B-Bar is a South African restaurant based at the Rubens at the Palace Hotel here in London. It's Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday this month and to celebrate, B-Bar has developed a menu of his favourite dishes made in collaboration with his personal chef. Hetty Spies is a member of the management team at B-Bar. She joins me now. Hetty, welcome to the show. And I should say that you've uh, brought in some delicious food that I uh, look forward to tasting in a minute. Um, But to begin, let's talk about how the idea for this menu came about and in particular, how you got in touch with Nelson Mandela's personal chef. Well, the, it, it is um, an honour to be able to actually um, do the, you know, this kind of collaboration with Kyulisa, which was his personal chef for 22 years. Um, and it, it came about, she, she visited us, thought it was great South African food, also international dishes on there. But she was very confident that we would be able to execute um, her lovely recipes in our restaurant. So we were very lucky. Um, and yeah, I mean, we we brought some of the, the small dishes along, a bit of a tasting here. Um, we have the wonderful vegetable samosas. Um, that was actually Nelson Mandela's first taste of something spicy. He was quite nervous having that. So Gulisa actually told us um, he wrote a letter in 1970, actually, just saying how nervous he was trying one of these kind of spicy delicacies and how he enjoyed it. Um, and then we brought uh, the famous Lumsbriadi along. That was actually um, smuggled into the prison, actually, on Robben Island of um, with one of his lawyers. Um, he would bring it along and just kind of try to keep his mood up. So, sorry, this 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 tomato-based dish here yes. was smuggled into a prison? It was indeed. I mean, that must have been no mean feat. It's, <laughs> it's you know, it's quite a kind of saucy dish. It is quite a saucy dish, but as you can see, you can you could quite easily contain it, um, and it travelled well to here, so I'm sure it would have made it into prison in a, in okay. a good state. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go in uh, for a bite while uh, you're answering uh, my next question, which is... How typical is this food of South African cuisine uh, more generally? And indeed, does it even make sense to talk about a general South African cuisine? No, it definitely does. Um, The bread, definitely, um, it's kind of a very slow cooked meal that you would put on quite early in the morning and, and it would just stew on the stove the whole day. And you would kind of, you know, and they we wouldn't have fresh uh, food, uh, vegetables actually most of the time but what we, you would do is you would have an, anything that's in your fridge you would you would take out and kind of put into the spready to make it the sauce kind of thick and delicious I've just tasted the bready that was the bready wasn't it <laughs> it was. is absolutely delicious I'm not going to go in for the uh, uh, for the Samosas. samosas because I fear the impact of the pastry crumble <laughs> on my presenting skills and indeed the tidiness of the uh, studio uh in uh, general. Um, And you said that the menu uh, has been carefully selected to reflect 
not only Nelson Mandela's personal tastes, but also some events in his life that were significant. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about about that. Definitely. Well, let's let's talk about the Cook Sisters here. It's like um, a deep fried dough, basically, and it's 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 spiced with cinnamon and cloves, and it's kind of that spiciness but sweetness at the same time. And that was actually a significant dish because he. Um, was one of the very first black people to actually go into Urania, which is a, a white settlement in South Africa. He went to go visit Betsy Favurt, um, which was the wife of the late um, Prime Minister um, Haif Favurt. And um, he actually sat down and he saw it as um, his kind of way of peacemaking, of talking about... It, it was something she would make. And it was her, his kind of way of finding a middle ground with her and sitting down and having some nice tea and coffee and, and a bit of cook sister. So that was a quite a big, significant dish in, in, in South Africa. I'm interested. So many aspects of South African culture uh, have obviously uh, changed uh, since the end of the apartheid era. How has culinary food culture uh, changed, both internally, but also, you know, has the country been subject to the explosion in culinary cosmopolitanism that so many countries in Europe have, you know, from actually around about the same time, certainly in Britain? Well, I, w- I would definitely say so. I mean, it, it, it really definitely um, makes a difference which part of South Africa you're going to. It's very diverse. I mean, we've got 11 national languages, for instance. Um, so if you go to Cape Town, for instance, you would find more kind of cosmopolitan food that, you know, you would find mostly everywhere and that's quite influenced. But if you travel more qu- kind of in, in into the country to the smaller kind of rural villages, you would find more more of the indigenous kind of really cultural food that you're looking for. However, in Cape Town, we've visited a, f- a few restaurants where they have actually brought a- that onto the main menu. And I think that is what Bibar has done very well, is they have quite a few international dishes on their on their menu where they sit alongside our long-standing South African menu. And then they've brought the Nelson Mandela 100-year menu on as well. So um, it's kind of a, you know, collaboration. And I think that's such a um, powerful um, tool is food. You know, Nelson Mandela saw food as kindness and happiness in a way of actually finding common ground with someone else and, and that, that bit of home comfort. And the food being delicious and, and, and simply home cooked was significant for him. So I think that, um, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> of course, yeah. I also wonder, as well as different cultural forces influencing South African cuisine. B-Bar's obviously been a great success uh, here in London. Um, what about the, the exporting of South African cuisine elsewhere into the world? Do you know of any kind of hotspots, any recommendations you might be able to give me? Well, I would say, um, I mean, most of our fruit does, uh, is actually exported into other countries, into the UK, for instance. Um, so we are actually quite renowned for our lovely fruit and vegetables that um, the best quality actually makes it out of the country um, and you know there's there's times of year that you would find um, grapes for instance sultanas which you don't really see so often here on the UK shelves um, you do actually get them um, for a few months of the year and if you do find that um, you can find them you know at kind of the main uh, grocery stores then I would definitely recommend buying some of those and you 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 know the chutneys for instance is made from sultanas um the sultana in the cook sister compote that um that that sweetens you know so you can have it either nicely in food actually i'm gonna go in for one of these oh go for it so what am i eating now (laughs) so you're now having the cook sisters um and it's 
it is served as a dessert, so it's nice and sweet, and it's in a fruit compote, so it's, you know, boiled down fruit that um, forms like a syrupy kind of consistency. That's good. <laughs> you can't talk. That's <laughs> that's amazing. Thanks for doing my job for me. That is extremely delicious. Good. I couldn't actually get any of the solid fruit onto the um, onto it itself, but I'll go in uh, for some. Well, uh, usually next how you time. would have it is you would have it in a side plate next to your coffee or tea if you prefer, and then you know it would much easier kind of you would be able to scoop that onto your cook sister. So. Okay, okay. We, this obviously is a suboptimal serving environment, <laughs> but I think you've done Indeed. extremely well. We should mention just before uh, we go that there is a charitable element to the menu isn't there there is indeed so for um every main course or three course meal that they that we sell um a a pound goes to the nelson mandela children's uk fund now this fund is really really um special because it actually does a few things in south africa it works with child protection and safety which is one of the high you know uh, highlights of of what they do and then also they do sport for good youth for change which build confidence in useful um, people with entrepreneurial skills as well so it's very near to our hearts fantastic hetty spies uh, thank you so uh, much for joining me get down uh, to b bar if you want to t- taste some of that delicious food uh, that is all we have time for on this week's edition of sunday brunch it was uh, produced by george mcdonough studio managed by sam impey Coming up, we have Our Girl on the Midori House Sessions. And then from midday, Tom Edwards and Rob Bound bring us the Monocle Weekly. From me, Henry Sheridan, it's goodbye for now.